Hello, and welcome back to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. This is the Century Series again with part two of our 1970s podcast. Today we're covering Star Wars, Halloween, Apocalypse Now, as well as some segments that you know and love, as well as an exciting new one. Why don't you just uh, start us off right away, Martin? All right. Well, just a quick recap of what we looked at last time in part one was The Godfather, Chinatown, Jaws, Monty Python, and the Holy Grail, Taxi Driver, Network, and Rocky. And as you mentioned, we're going to start right off with Star Wars. So, you know, there's almost nothing new that we could possibly say about this next film on our list. Over the past four plus decades, so much has been written about or said about Star Wars that this whole segment seems almost a little redundant. However, it would be impossible, of course, to do a podcast about movies in the 70s without mentioning Star Wars. So what I think we'll try to do is consider Star Wars in the context of this series as another step in the evolution of film and sort of talk about it mostly in in that light. Sounds good to me. So briefly, after George Lucas's first feature film, THX 1138, he was given a two-film development deal with United Artists. The first of those films in 1973 was American Graffiti, which did quite well, being nominated for Best Picture and establishing him as a rising directorial talent along with others from his generation of filmmakers, like we've looked at already in this uh, series on the 70s, Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola, Martin Scorsese, and Steven Spielberg. But he had been disappointed that THX 1138 hadn't done very well and thought he should try science fiction again, but with a more upbeat, crowd-pleasing kind of story. His initial idea, as has been mentioned many times, and part of his development deal, actually, was to try to bring Flash Gordon to the screen. However, he couldn't get the rights to it, so he just decided to invent his own. He developed a treatment for this idea, but United Artists didn't want to spend the money on it, so then he took it to Universal... Then Disney, everyone passed until he finally came to an agreement with 20th Century Fox. Oh, that's after, ironic for Disney. Yeah, <laughs> and now it's come full circle and they own it after all this time anyway. Anyway, after numerous rewrites and cribbing from sources such as Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress and Joseph Campbell's uh, book The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he eventually came up with the story that we all know today. So let's just skip to the end. The movie opened in around 30 theaters uh, only on May 25th, 1977, and was an immediate success. It expanded rapidly into theaters around the world and became the biggest film of all time. It launched revolutions in special effects, merchandising, and numerous other aspects connected to the movie industry. We all know the story. Young farm boy on a desolate planet has dreams of getting out and seeing the universe. He runs into a space wizard, rescues a princess, becomes a hero (laughs) of the rebellion when he destroys the evil Galactic Empire's new super weapon with the help of two droids, a smuggler, and his giant hirsute friend. (laughs) Zach, in the context of this Century series, what are your thoughts? Um, it's, it's interesting. I am, I'm a Star Wars fan, but I'm not a Star Wars fanboy, um, I've always liked it, but I think the more times I watch it, the more I see this movie for what it is, which is George Lucas just trying to make a whole bunch of money. And I I, I respect it, 
but it doesn't seem like a complete movie to me, at least not A New Hope. Um, we don't even see a lightsaber until 34 minutes in, and those lightsabers aren't <laughs> um, activated until the the lame-ass duel between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. <laughs> it's like just two old guys just... just bzz, bzz, bzz. Slowly <laughs> hacking away at each other. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 of course, I understand the cultural impact, and we're still feeling the aftershocks to this day in a, uh, in a big, big way. Um, I'm just not the uh, the biggest Star Wars fan. I... <laughs> there are two things in the opening sequence that I want to point out that made me laugh out loud this time. First off is uh, Carrie Fisher, who is obviously Princess Leia's attempt at a British accent for like six minutes of the film before she <laughs> just drops it. <laughs> and the second one is, I think this is the only time a stormtrooper has had a kill shot when they break in and finally you know, uh, kill some of the rebels. I think we had some in the force awakens, but it's the first time I've seen a stormtrooper aim correctly. And it's one of the reasons why I love the Mandalorian now, because they made a, a fantastic reference to that <laughs> in this last season. Yeah. Especially when, uh, Obi-Wan even mentions near the beginning, Oh, only storm Imperial stormtroopers can fire with that kind of accuracy. Right. <laughs> when he's pointing out the burn marks on the, on the Jawa's vehicle. I think for me, the, the first thing that stands out is again, in the context of this, how of this century series, how inventive it was. Mm. I mean, there had been sci-fi movies before and aliens and some of them, obviously, but this developed a whole galaxy of planets and towns and creatures and politics and spaceships. So just the expanse of the inventiveness of this movie, I think, is is notable as a development in, in movie history. And also, obviously, the special effects. And the, I mean, the only thing you can really compare it to in terms of movies that came before it is 2001, mm. which was kind of grounded in reality. Uh, in a way that this wasn't, but also much more minimalist. Whereas this might not have been it was as realistic, but it was immensely more complex in terms of a lot of the, the special effects that they were going for. So just those two things alone, I think, um, aside from everything else that you could talk about, Star Wars market as a landmark achievement in film at the time in 1977. Yeah. Um, I think the shitty thing for me was that I watched the Disney Plus version, which is the updated version with all the new special effects, all the CGI that George Lucas put in in the early 2000s. So it, I wasn't going to shell out the money for an original version just because I didn't have it. And I think that I think that dampened the experience a lot for me because when you see like CGI job, it makes the it worse. Oh, it's oh, noticeable. One hundred percent. It's terrible. One hundred percent. And that was that was my feeling through um, you know the entire original trilogy is that they never should have messed with it. But yeah, just yeah, just seeing like CGI Jabba talking with like digitally inserted Harrison Ford and stuff like that kind of really put me off. But yeah, I wish uh, I wish I could have gone back and seen the original version because I'm sure it would have 
kind of blew my mind a lot more because I would have been watching it in the context of 1977. Yeah, I was going to say, like, for me, um, one of the best compliments I think I can give it, setting aside, and I just try to ignore that stuff if I'm watching it, and as I said, you can tell what's the new stuff and what's the old stuff, which... Did you do the Disney Plus as well? I actually have, I didn't, I've got a, a, just an old um, disc copy that I've Mm. had that I can't remember it has some of the special effects but not all of the new ones so it's it's kind of an in-between version because i've had it forever but for me one of the best compliments you can give it is that even after 43 years you know aside from a few things it doesn't actually feel that dated to me Mm -hmm. it uh it's kind of timeless in a way yeah the cgi actually makes it more dated because we're talking about early 2000s cgi as opposed to now where it's infinitely better. And uh, yeah, George Lucas did a real, real disservice to the entire series when he went back and did that. But another couple of timestamps that I wanted to do that I noticed as I was watching this is this is really the story of um, R2-D2 in a way, because he's in the opening sequence. He goes on a really good arc it's uh, 17 minutes before we see Luke Skywalker, which for a typical hero's journey type movie is very atypical. And it's 48 minutes until we see Han Solo, which is also kind of crazy since he's supposed to be one of the main characters. And I didn't realize how long they spent on Tatooine at the beginning, but it's damn near half the movie. And not a lot happens in this movie if you really think about it. There's like there's like five or six like really major beats, and the rest of it is just kind of world building, which I understand because it's never been done before. But do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why it was so important that that first scene takes place in space right? so that you get a sense of the wider context before it goes to Tatooine. Because as you say, yeah, then it's then it's a long time on Tatooine before they really get back to this other world. Um, so I think I agree with you, but I think that's also, it was why it was such a good choice to have that initial scene with the stormtroopers and Darth Vader and, and the two droids and everything up in a spaceship. Um, I will say, we've touched on it again. You just mentioned the hero's journey. This, again, in terms of turning points, this was one of the films that really brought the hero's journey to the fore Mm -hmm. in terms of storytelling and film, Um, especially at least for big-budget blockbusters, right? Like, it's hard to think of a big blockbuster in the last 40 years where that isn't the primary story engine. And a lot of it goes back to this movie that, that if not all of it yeah yeah exactly um and and whereas it hadn't really been that prominent as a storytelling engine in a lot of the films before this point so again in the context of the series that's another big um uh, turning point that this that this film was yeah you're right this well it's not uh... It's not like my favorite film, but it, it does represent a shift in the way stories are told. Like every single Marvel movie follows this template. Harry Potter follows this template. Every single big budget 
movie that involves a, a lone hero going up against the going up against the odds. Pirates of the Caribbean, like yeah, basically yeah. every every big budget blockbuster is is this story. Yeah, and for the people that don't know, uh, Hero of a Thousand Faces, it's just basically the the tale of the monomyth and how every culture around the world came up with essentially the same origin story for the world with. obviously small variations here and there no matter how different humanity is there is this kind of um monoculture where everybody thinks the same thing at the same time and that kind of diverts in different places depending on the culture but if you look at just the uh the monotheistic the three major monotheistic religions nowadays with uh um, christianity judaism and um, islam they all have similar beginnings, similar prophets that all kind of do the same things. And even though they were th- the cultures were thousands of miles apart, they all came up with this independently, which is crazy to think about. So that's what um, Joseph Campbell wrote about. And there's a, uh, I think it's an eight-step journey. And that's why we have eight sequences in most Hollywood blockbusters these days. So, yeah, George Lucas definitely tapped into something that hadn't really been tapped into, at least at least consciously, because I'm sure subconsciously all these filmmakers were trying to adapt to a structure. It's definitely, yeah, and each one of the little elements in this movie, because George Lucas was aware of it as he was writing, it really hits each one of those elements, including, you know, sort of the refusal at the, of the call at the beginning, and that's clearly when Obi-Wan tells him, you're going to need to learn this if you're going to come on with my, uh, come on my journey with me. And he says, what? No, I can't leave Tatooine after, you know, the whole time pining to leave before that. <laughs> I can't leave. I've, I've got a farm. I've got to go back. I've got... And Peru to to, uh, to to look after or whatever. Um, so each one of those elements is really prominent in this in this movie. Uh, but then, of course, the other broader uh, sort of overarching theme, I guess, in this movie is is the one about kind of getting a little bit to, and maybe he drew this also from Hero of a Thousand Faces and his study of culture, is this overarching thing that connects and unites everybody, and that, of course, is the famous Force. And so Mm -hmm. here's a little bit of Valak Guinness uh, talking about the Force in the first place. Vader was seduced by the dark side of the Force. The Force? The Force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. So that obviously has is, is become sort of ubiquitous and uh, the force and just that idea is, is everywhere. We talk about it all the time. People talk about may, may the fourth be with you even on mm-hmm. a sort of Star Wars day. It's just every, something that's permeated our culture everywhere. I, I do think it's interesting that in a movie like this, they really kind of needed Alec Guinness to kind of lend legitimacy to the whole movie because otherwise it could have been seen initially as just this crazy, hokey, weird sci-fi thing. But then you've got you know, Academy Award-winning serious dramatic actor Alec Guinness. And, oh, okay, uh, maybe for people who back in 1977 might not otherwise have given it a chance, gave it a chance. Yeah, between Alec Guinness and James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader, that really brought some 
much needed gravitas to this movie because it like you said it could have been seen as just an average B movie and it could have ruined Lucas as a uh, as a filmmaker. He could have just totally fallen behind his uh, his comrades in Spielberg and Coppola and we would have never heard of him again. <laughs> Basically, yeah, this was this was a shot. He he bet a lot on this, even to the point of you know famously giving up a lot of his pay uh, if he could get a few of the stuff on the back end. Famously, like the merchandising rights, which obviously made him basically a billionaire by the, by this point. Yeah, because action figures weren't really much of a thing at the time. I mean, GI Joes were just starting to come out, and they still weren't you know top selling figurines and. And stuff like that, but now people that have, you know, the original Han Solo with the original jacket and the original blaster in the hermetically sealed case, they could be millionaires if they wanted to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> Which most aren't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, just another revolution that this that this movie started. Not only sort of the whole action figure craze and all that kind of stuff, but the merchandising being almost as important. Uh, to movie studios and producers as movies themselves in what yeah, for is better at or the worse. end of the day show business it is a business exactly time for Halloween <laughs> While it can be argued that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the first slasher film, or maybe even Psycho back in 1960, this is really the one that solidified the genre and set the standard for the barrage of slashers we had all the way through the late 90s, for better or worse. Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and Ghostface all owe part, if not all, of their prolific success to Michael Myers. Halloween is directed, co-written, and scored by John Carpenter. And that's an amazing score. Producer Deborah Hill also co-wrote the script. It stars established actor Donald Pleasance as Dr. Loomis, and it introduces Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, who would forever be locked in a battle between good and evil with the psychotic and seemingly immortal Michael Myers. It spawned more sequels and remakes than I care to name, but suffice to say, it, people still find the character of Michael Myers fascinating, even though he's never spoken a word on film. So that's a, that's a pretty interesting accolade. We start off in 1963, Halloween night in the small town of Haddonfield, Illinois. A six-year-old Michael Myers brutally murders his older sister with a kitchen knife with no explanation given. He's obviously institutionalized and placed under the care of Dr. Loomis, He's kind of a shitty psychiatrist, but that's not really the point. Myers escapes from a transport vehicle, dons his iconic mask and coveralls, and nabs himself a knight, and let the killing begin! Laurie is the innocent virginal babysitter whose only real quote-unquote sin is taking... Uh, she's taking it a bit of reefer with her slutty friend. I only say slutty because that's how she's meant to be portrayed, not because those are my views or the views of the unsolicited film review family at large. Of course, Myers winds up killing everyone but Lori and Loomis and gets shot like ten times, falls out of a window, but walks away without leaving a trail of blood or any kind of stain. It's 
good, dumb fun at its finest. It didn't win any Oscars. It's not on the AFI 100 list, but who gives a shit about what a bunch of stuffy critics think? It's a bona fide classic and made the template for an immensely successful genre. Martin, what are your thoughts? I had first rewatched this last year before the new Halloween came out. Mm. And so I had seen it again recently before I watched it uh, this past week. And it's a very basic movie. There's mm-hmm. there's not much to it. There's no deeper meaning. I think people have probably tried to ascribe some sort of deeper meanings to it. <laughs> but really, John Carpenter didn't have that in mind and it doesn't have anything. Uh, but obviously, that simplicity was incredibly influential as well. And in a way, frankly, because it's easier and cheaper to make movies that way. So that also led to this becoming a highly successful genre, as you mentioned. The, uh, there were so many tropes that really began with this movie. The, 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 the final girl trope, the, the female mm-hmm. heroine in uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character. A lot of the first-person angles that you see that, that was obviously very influential as well. You can see the... Um, not just from Psycho, but just in general, the Hitchcockian uh, influence on this movie just all the way through. And I think John Carpenter's obviously recognized this. And even a couple of the character names are, are tributes to, to Hitchcock characters. So it's, um, it's all just about building suspense. The other thing, again, about rewatching it last year and then again this year, is just how, by today's standards... <laughs> how quaint it is. Uh, in the whole <laughs> movie, Michael Myers' body count is four people. Yeah. He only kills four people. That's it. Which, <laughs> you know, that's sort of, uh, that's nothing by today's standards. So it's interesting just to see over the past 42 years how how that's developed, that we've just become so desensitized to that kind of, uh, vicious, bloodthirsty violence that uh, something that was shocking and such a horror movie back in 1978 seems kind of quaint to us now in 2020. Yeah, I think the horror filmmakers kind of lost sight of the fact that it's not the kills that are scary, it's the suspense and the lead-up to the kills. That goes back to my point in the last podcast where I said about Jaws that it's about telling, not showing. And we don't see Michael Myers a whole lot throughout the film, and we definitely don't see him in like full body, like well-lit until the climactic sequence with him and, uh, and Laurie. And... He's always kind of like off in the corner. And that's why the, the kid that Laurie's babysitting calls him the boogeyman, because he does seem like this kind of ethereal character that, you know, isn't really man nor beast. He's kind of something in between. And that makes it infinitely more creepy than just having this, you know, kill fest where he slaughters 20 people in a movie. And it's just like, oh, how can we get more creative with the kills? Exactly. And the way Donald Pleasance's character talks about him, too, as just this evil. And maybe he's not even really human. He's just this Mm. thing and more this idea or this image. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the music combined with the fact that we don't actually really see Myers for much of the film, that really makes the tension of this whole thing work. 
And uh, you're right, unfortunately, a lot of the copycats over the years, I think they just saw the template and the simplicity and the screams and the kills and thought, oh, that's what I'm going to try to remake without really taking a look at what made this movie great in the first place. It's funny that uh, obviously, you know, super low budget film, <laughs> a little bit of trivia, which people may know, but the, the original Mike Myers mask was actually just a modified Captain Kirk mask that they had bought at a store for two bucks and then painted white. That's all that was. So that's what the uh, so that's basically William Shatner going around killing a bunch of people there. <laughs> yeah, but uh, John Carpenter really manages to tease the tension out over a long period of time. I forgot a timestamp when the first murder happens, but. We see. Well, this, uh, the first one's in that, I guess, almost the flash. It's not a flashback because the movie starts oh, yeah, there. Yeah, but, that, yeah. but yeah, you're right. Then the next one after that is a long way into the movie. Yeah, I think it's more than halfway before he actually starts killing the teenagers. Like, I think he kills the, you know, the the mental institution guy for his coveralls kind of early on. And, uh, you know, he grabs the, the knife and the and the mask. But... Yeah, this was a lot more compelling than I remember because I haven't seen this in at least four or five years. And, you know, I've always kind of half watched it as just a, you know, a slasher flick and, you know, a Halloween tradition to watch Halloween. But studying this film, it actually really impressed me with how effective it was at what what emotions it was trying to evoke. I agree, and uh, it's um, it was funny again just when it first comes up because obviously now Halloween is so the franchise is so linked to Jamie Lee Curtis and her character that you think that she's the big star, but no, this was her first film, and the only mm-hmm. name that's above the title is Donald Pleasance. Right. <laughs> and even then, he only got $20,000 for this movie, <laughs> even though he was kind of the big star because he'd been in The Great Escape and a Bond movie, and that's about So at least he was recognizable. But again, as as you pointed out, it's it's not about even the stars. It's not about that. It's about what John Carpenter was able to do in building tension and being successful at, at as you say, the emotions he was trying to evoke. Right, and, you know, I'm sure there are some people out there that thought we should have chosen The Exorcist or The Omen or Texas Chainsaw, but um, those those aren't ones that really launched the genre the way that this did, and, I mean, we wouldn't even have, like, uh, a Scream by Wes Craven, which is a a great send-up of these kind of movies without this, and... It just catapulted a a genre that hadn't really been seen before and made all the tropes that we are sick and tired of nowadays, but at the time were legitimately scary, I'm sure, especially for babysitters. Exactly. No, you're right. Exorcist probably is a better movie overall, actually. Mm -hmm. It certainly is a better movie. Exorcist is just incredibly scary, (laughs) just a a ridiculous movie. Still, today, it just freaks the hell out of you. But (laughs) it didn't have the same sort of long-lasting impact that that Halloween did. So I think this was the, the best choice to talk about in terms of 
uh, introducing this new genre in a way to to film in the 1970s. Yeah, and again, that's what we're that's what we're about here in the Century series. We're not picking necessarily the best films. We're picking a lot of of the best films, but we're also trying to hone in on the movies that really impacted a decade and we think collectively that Halloween did that more than these others. This is the end Beautiful friend This is the end so that leads us to our final film of the 1970s, Apocalypse Now, which is a Vietnam War film by Francis Ford Coppola that premiered at the Cannes Film Festival on May 19, 1979, before being widely released in August later that year. Uh, just first of all, there are at least three different main cuts of this movie. There's the original mm. theatrical release. There's the Apocalypse Now Redux extended version which came out about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And then there's a final, quote-unquote, final cut with remastered footage that's sort of an in-between length that came out last year uh, for the 40th anniversary of the film. Now, I chose to watch the original for this podcast because, again, as... Okay, yeah, because as we're going through this, I wanted to experience the film as an audience in 1979 would have, even though I've seen it a couple of times before. I've, I've definitely watched the Redux... Uh, I haven't seen this new final cut, but um, the, the 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 original is is great on its own. The Redux drags a bit, and it's it's too long. <laughs> um, in any case, the screenplay for this film was written by John Milius, uh, with later input by Coppola. Now, Milius is another one of these legendary screenwriters. There's a lot of them we've talked about in the '70s that you won't necessarily understand why they're legendary just by looking at his, his credits list. Uh, there were some of the... Uh, here, you know, here, here we go, though. Here's a few of the other things that he did as a writer. He's an uncredited writer on uh, Dirty Harry, along with actually Terrence Malick, who was also an uncredited writer on Dirty oh, Harry. Wow. He must have made a good impression because he then was asked to write the script for Magnum Force, the next Dirty Harry movie. And he is credited with the iconic "Go ahead, make my day" line, so that's a pretty damn good thing to have on your belt. <laughs> he was also responsible for adding the the modern day bookend scenes in the Normandy graveyard for the Saving Private Ryan movie when he was asked to do that by uh, by Steven Spielberg, asked to take a look and see if it needed anything else, and he suggested adding that. And also, just in terms of his personal life, <laughs> he's a friend of a lot of filmmakers, including those 70s uh, icons, but also he's a friend of the Coen brothers. And he's reportedly the inspiration behind the Walter Sobchak character in The Big Lebowski that was played by John Goodman. That's wow. apparently the kind of guy that Milius is. He's this sort of gun-toting, somewhat crazy <laughs> dude. <laughs> So, way back in 1969, Milius had been talking with friends, including uh, people like Spielberg and, uh, sorry, people like Coppola and George Lucas, about doing a Vietnam story, and they encouraged him to, to do that. And he eventually came up with the idea of adapting Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, a novella about 18th century colonialism in the Congo, 
But Milius decided he wanted to set this in the Vietnam conflict. So for years, George Lucas Lucas was actually slated to be the director of this, and Coppola was going to produce. They they were all three of them were friends, but obviously it finally went ahead with Coppola as the director. Now we don't have time <laughs> to go into all of the insanity that took place during the production of this movie. <laughs> it's gone down in film lore as one of the craziest film productions in history where people thought they were really going insane in the jungle in the Philippines where they were filmed. Principal photography took 238 days, and including obstacles like Martin Sheen having a heart attack and almost dying during the film, and Marlon Brando showing up too fat to be able to do some of the scenes, so they had to rewrite it, and refusing to learn his lines. There was a lot of stuff that happened. But the film is stocked with an amazing cast, including Sheen, Brando, Robert Duvall, Harrison Ford, Dennis Hopper, Scott Glenn, and a very young Lawrence Fishburne. Larry. Larry Fishburne, that's right. <laughs> Later to be called Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, when he matured. Apocalypse <laughs> Now was nominated for eight Academy Awards and won two. It sits at numbers 28 and 30 on AFI's Top 100 Films lists. And it has the number 12 quote on the top 100 movies quotes list for the famous uh, first line of this uh, little speech here. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, one time we had a hail bomb for 12 hours. When it was all over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them, not one stinking big body. Smell, you know, that gasoline smell. Oh hell! Smells like victory. So the overall plot for Apocalypse Now seems fairly simple. It's about a greed beret during the Vietnam War who is given secret orders to venture deep into the jungle and assassinate a decorated American colonel who's gone rogue. Along the way, he experiences the insanity and horrors of the war, and is forced to confront his own purpose in the broader conflict as well as deal with his own rising internal darkness. Zach, what are your impressions of Apocalypse Now? The production behind this is almost as legendary as the film itself. And you were mentioning that, but I urge anybody who's a fan of this movie to watch Hearts of Darkness it's a it's the documentary of the making of this movie and mostly filmed by Francis Ford Coppola's wife and it's a great watch because you get crazy Marlon Brando who meets even crazier Dennis Hopper at the time <laughs> like Marlon Brando is out of his mind refusing to read his, read his lines and you know like 150 pounds overweight Dennis Hopper is dropping acid like three times a day refusing to remember anything that Francis Ford Coppola throws at him. Uh, there's the, yeah, there's the behind the scenes stuff of the, of the opening film of the movie where, which they filmed when Martin Sheen was totally hammered 
Oh, and yeah. that blood that's on him in that that's real blood because he punched a mirror and then and then Coppola just kept the the film rolling because Sheen asked him to and and Sheen's just going incredibly crazy and this is this is what comes through in the opening scene of the movie yeah the the, the behind the scenes stuff that uh, Coppola's wife filmed was incredible oh yeah and also there was a typhoon halfway through filming that destroyed basically all their sets as well so yeah, yeah they the, still try to push through. <laughs> the, the, the filming of this is, is just insane. Yeah, the fact that this film got made is as impressive as the film itself. But that said, this is an incredible movie. I think it is the definitive Vietnam movie. Uh, I think it's way better than Platoon um, that's, that came out in the 80s. And... It's kind of weird because Oliver Stone was actually a soldier in Vietnam and Coppola never went over there. And I just think Coppola's a better filmmaker than Oliver Stone. (laughs) But, yeah, when you get that cast together, magic happens no matter (laughs) what your troubles are. Coppola damn near went insane. I love the story because um, Heart of Darkness is a fantastic novel, and I think this is the perfect way to modernize it. Yeah, just substituting British colonialism for American interventionism. It's, uh, yeah, for, for me, it, it, this is just, it, it's a devastating film. I think yeah, is yeah, is yeah. the best way to describe it. It's just devastating on all levels. It's such a relentless movie, just scene after scene of things getting crazier and crazier, and the whole thing just seems so tense all the way, and it just keeps building and building, with just you know with just enough sprinkled in about Kurtz as um, Sheen's character is giving these voiceovers as he's reading his dossier about this guy he's been sent to assassinate, that it gives it enough plot direction. Uh, but also increasing sort of curiosity and, and also dread about what's waiting for them at the end of their destination. It's just devastating and relentless, I think, are the two best adjectives for this movie. Yeah, and they don't overdo it with a voiceover like they tend to do in a lot of war movies. Uh, almost all of his voiceover is about Kurtz after he finds out about Kurtz, I mean. But, yeah, this is not a casual watch this isn't like what we were talking about with Jaws where you can like flip through, see, oh yeah, Jaws is on and you know, watch it halfway through. You need to be in the right mindset. You need to sit down, turn the lights off and really take this in as an experience. And it is emotionally taxing just to get through this movie. It really is. And it starts even I mean, the, the opening scene with Sheen, you can tell just what we're in for. But that first scene where just in terms of filmmaking brilliance as well, that first scene where we come across Robert Duvall's unit, it's just mm. so chaotic and incredible. So much is happening in every single shot. I, I don't know how they film that. You've got helicopters and gunfire and a camera crew with Coppola making a, a cameo appearance as a camera crew in Vietnam, a little <laughs> meta thing. And you've got dying enemy combats. Half the village is on fire. You've got amphibious assault vehicles, a religious service. Like, all this is taking place in this scene. It's just incredible filmmaking. And yet, Robert Duvall's character is just casually talking about surfing the whole time. <laughs> He's just and, strolling through it all, oblivious. And it's just brilliant how it shows how desensitized a human being can get to just 
death and devastation all around him at all hours. I mean, you have to dissociate yourself from that situation if you're going to maintain any semblance of sanity. I mean, you know, nobody came back the way that they went in Vietnam, especially because it's not like, you know, World War One and Two, where, you know, you go, you know what you're fighting for. And of course, there were many, many, many people with PTSD and shell shock and what have you, but there was just so much disillusionment surrounding the Vietnam War, and Apocalypse Now really manages to capture that in a way that no war film had ever done before. Completely agree. And and even that scene with the uh, with the Playboy bunnies, which mm. today what seems a little odd, especially in, in today's climate and the Me Too era and everything, but it really works for me in the context of this movie because you think at first you think it's a bit of a reprieve, you know, it's just another crazy thing they've come across in the jungle. Until the the Playboy bunnies are sort of dropped in, the soldiers go nuts and then start try to get at the women. And part of you thinks, well, of course, you put hundreds of desperate young boys together in a war zone and then drop in a few half-naked women. What do you expect will happen? But then you have to sort of have to step back and think, well, why is that? And of course, and it's just another demonstration of of the darkness of the human soul that the Milius and Coppola were trying to illustrate in this in this movie. It, it also just really fits in with the the rest of the theme of the whole film. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree because you can step into their shoes pretty easily. I mean, it's like it's like dropping a zebra into a uh, cage of hungry lions. Because they do become animals, they have to, because that's our animalistic instinct, and you cease to become human when you're in that kind of environment for that long. Yeah, the the another just on um, changing gears a little bit on a technical issue, the sound in this film. It's just extraordinary. It's one of the two Oscars at one, even though like everything else during production, they had problems all the all the way through. But it was one of the very first films that used surround sound. Um, unfortunately, most of the theaters that it was shown in in 1979 didn't have the equipment to handle the 5.1 surround sound technology. Uh, but listening to it even just... You know, a little tiny home theater system. The sound is just amazing as well. Yeah, and since this is our this since this is our last movie, I want to point out how iconic the music was. Oh wow! Yeah, not just from the seventies, like in general, but the seventies in film. All ten of these movies that we've covered have an iconic opening theme uh probably with the exception of network but yeah just incorporating the doors into apocalypse now you know this is the end is playing but it's at the beginning of the film but it's really the end of captain willard's sanity and he was on the brink anyway as we saw (laughs) but yeah to play the end Plus, it brings you into that time frame and like the the fan float, uh, the fan uh, spinning around and then turning into uh, helicopter blades. Yeah, you were talking about match cuts in the last podcast. That right. Yeah. Then or two podcasts ago. Yeah, the the carpet bombing and oh god, and 
yeah, then the Doors were such like a hippie band that to show them in the context of this just brutal, brutal war, the duck, the juxtaposition of that was uh, goosebump inducing. Exactly, and then and then you throw in Wagner in another part of the film, and it yeah, it yeah. works perfectly in the context as well. Just overall an unbelievable movie. But uh, again, as as with Godfather, it could go on forever, and there's so much to unpack. But we don't have time for that. So that's it for the '70s movies. We hope you enjoyed our discussion as much as we did. I had a blast. So we're gonna go to our traditional segment of who missed the cut and there were a lot believe me but we had to narrow it down to five just for brevity's sake so martin so the first one that is in this section of who missed the cut is is a clockwork orange from 1971 so as we mentioned last time when we were doing 2001 uh kubrick was an unbelievable filmmaker, incredibly influential, and and did things that people had never done before. But unfortunately, we might not have much room for him in this in this century series, aside from 2001. And A Clockwork Orange is definitely one of those just incredibly unique movies. But in terms of this, it may have almost been too unique. It uh, it didn't really. It's hard for. It was just so different and at the time actually kind of so scandalous with some of the violence and everything else that it used that it was it wasn't really trend setting in a, in a way that a lot of these other movies were. It wasn't a turning point in film aside from maybe just how over the top the acceptance of violence was for it. So unfortunately, as incredible and just oppressive of a movie it is, and I mean that in a very good sense. It uh, it just didn't quite fit in with what we're trying to do in this Century series. Right, and next up was another, all these are tough cuts, but another one we had to cut was The Sting from 1973. We already had the legendary foursome of actors Newman and Redford, writer William Goldman, and director Hill in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, our discussion boiled down to which one are we going to do, and there was more room in the 60s for that one than there was in the 70s for this one, so sorry the sting, but couldn't do you. The next one, and this is a really tough cut, it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975, Obviously directed by Milos Forman with an amazing performance by Jack Nicholson. This was a very famous book at the time, and the movie was very famous and incredibly successful. One of the, um, if I'm not mistaken, one of the uh, last films to have to kind of sweep a lot of the major awards. Um, mm-hmm. the, and, yeah, they had the big five. And, yeah, and um, just a, an unbelievable movie. But I don't even necessarily have a good argument why we couldn't squeeze it in. It just it we just couldn't squeeze it in because it didn't seem to typify any particular one thing in the seventies that we were looking for. Right. I mean, it, uh, if we were going to choose, it had to come down to that in Chinatown, and I think Chinatown kind of fit our mold a little bit better. But you know, that's that's the name of the game. So yeah, another one. 
really hard to cut. Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, we already showcased Pacino and director Sidney Lumet uh, of, uh, when Lumet did 12 Angry Men. Uh, another great movie, but, I mean, this is like trying to get into the, in, into the 90s Bull Squad. <laughs> <laughs> this is an all-star team, and we had to make some really tough cuts. And the final one is Superman from 1978, which, although it was really the first major uh, superhero movie and was incredibly successful, it kind of stood alone for a while. There were a few bad superhero movies in the in the 80s that followed, but it didn't really launch a revolution in superhero movies. So as much as it was the first and it's incredibly important, it didn't really launch the... I mean, it really wasn't until Batman in 1989 that we started again seeing major superhero movies. And then even that, we'll see in a few minutes if we have room for that one in the 80s. Maybe, maybe not. Um, and, but the superhero thing, again, obviously is a much more modern craze in terms of its dominance of the box office. So Superman, even though it was the first, it didn't really spark the revolution at that time. That is superhero movies as we know them today. You are correct in that. So that leads into our world-famous... Or, you know, at least amongst a few people, a famous segment, either or. Either or. So here are our questions for either or today. Zach, biggest spiral into insanity, either Travis Bickle or Captain Willard? See, this is a tough one because both of them were <laughs> totally about their spiral into insanity. But I think I'll... Shit. I was about to... I thought I had my mind made up. God damn. I'm actually going to switch and go with Captain Willard. I was thinking Travis Bickle all goddamn day because, you know, <laughs> that's what it was about. But I think Bickle was already insane to begin with. And not that Willard was the most stable guy, but the entire odyssey that he went on just saw him get more jaded and jaded and jaded. And for him to kill, it's basically his mirror image. It's what he would have become had he gone down the jungle journey on his own for him to kill Kurtz was like killing part of himself in a way. And for him to walk out of that, it's like, who is this guy going to become? He could have become Travis Bickle. I'm going to disagree. I, I, okay. This is absolutely tough, and I kind of went back and forth a few times. And they're both insane. They're both crazy. They both have a good spiral into insanity <laughs> <laughs> in terms of a, a movie storyline. Uh, more crazy things happen to Willard, I guess. But in the mm. end, I'm going with Travis, Travis Pickle for one reason and one reason only, and that's that... Captain Willard kind of, in spite of himself, in spite of the circumstances, 
he kind of accomplished his goal. I mean, his mission oh, yeah, was yeah. to assassinate Kurtz, and that's what he ended up doing, whereas Travis Pickle didn't really have a mission except maybe to kill the presidential candidate guy. He didn't really end up doing that. He killed a few other random dudes. So I'm going to go with a results-based analysis here <laughs> and say that it's got to be Travis Pickle because at least Captain Willard achieved his aim. Yeah, I wrote that one. I was thinking Bickle all day, but for some reason, after just talking about Apocalypse Now, <laughs> it's like I'm a prisoner of the moment. But yeah, uh, either way. Um, either or, best set of kills, Jaws or Michael Myers? I think uh, these are very similar in a way, uh, mm-hmm. because what we talked about, that for most of the movie, you don't really see them. It's more the dread of them that's the tension and the, and the scary aspect of these characters. But I still think that Jaws's kills are better overall. <laughs> just this this sort of unseen force dragging people down and just blood in the water. Whereas Michael Myers, he kills a few people, and there is that really creepy scene where she just opens up sort of three doors of the closet or whatever and keeps running into a dead body that of the three people in that house that Michael Myers has killed. But for me, it's got to be Jaws in terms of best set of kills. All right, I'm going to go with uh, Michael Myers for this one. I think, um, first of all, stabbing your teenage sister when you're six years old is a, is a you know, great, great accomplishment if your aspirations are to be a serial killer. <laughs> I don't. I never saw the Young Jaws, so I don't know what his backstory <laughs> was. <laughs> um, stabbing the dude in the glasses and like pinning him up to the cabinet, I thought is one of the all-time great serial killer movie kills. That was a good kill. You're right. And then putting the sheet over his head and the dude's glasses over <laughs> over the sheet. And uh, yeah, that almost made it into slap slapstick though for a second there when he was doing well, that. Doesn't that. matter to me. I'm just talking about the best one, the one that entertained me the most. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that he just goes off and kills her. Um, yeah, I mean the opening jaw sequence was amazing when he kills the skinny dipper. But you know, all he's doing is biting people, and I will admit, all he's all Michael Myers is doing is stabbing people. <laughs> but. I think Michael Myers goes about it in a better way. All right. And either or first, we've disagreed on the first two questions. Let's see if that continues. The third one, seedier bad guy, Noah Cross from Chinatown or Sport from Taxi Driver? Let's preface this by saying they are both pedophiles and rapists. They both establish relationships with very, very young underage women. And despite the fact that that dancing scene between Sport and Isis, Jodie Foster's character, is one of the creepiest scenes I've ever watched in my life, I will have to go with Noah Cross just because he's going to get away with it in the end. He fucked his, do- he fucked his own daughter, which is creepier than regular pedophilia. I know we're getting into like, levels of sadism. He fucked his own daughter whelped a bastard on her and is probably going to be fucking his own granddaughter thusly. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. I think basically what this comes down to, they're both horrible people. Basically, it's the tip of the balance, which is more evil. It's, it's really hard to tell, but 
the difference between them sport turns his underage girl out for prostitution whereas with Noah Cross you have the incest thing added to it so they're bo- I, I'm going to have to tilt towards incest being slightly <laughs> slightly more evil but you know it's uh, which black is blacker kind of thing there mm. there that those those are both pretty dark places we're going to yeah i mean how fucked up is it that the these 70s movies have made us have this conversation <laughs> about yeah. which is worse they went to dark places yeah right all right so either or Worst organizational leader, Sonny Corleone of the Corleone crime family, or that mayor of Amity Island? They were both horrible. Um, mm. The <laughs> Sonny Corleone sort of takes over and basically immediately ramps up a, a gang war that obviously gets a bunch of his people killed, ends up getting himself killed because he can't control his own anger. He is, uh, you know, dismissed later on by his own father as being a terrible Don. But on the other hand, the mayor of Amity Island, I mean, at the end of the day with Sonny Corleone, I think he... He had to react in some way. He didn't do a very good job of it, which does make him a bad leader of his of his mafia organization. But he had to react in some way towards the hit on his on his father. The mayor of Amity Island is just ignorant to what's going on. He's just trying to line his pockets. He's just uh, not paying attention to any of the experts. For me, he's a, he's a he's a worse leader because he's just sort of willfully ignorant. Okay, I'm going to go with Sonny on this one because, for me, it was tough, but it came down to how destructive they were to their own organizations. And Amity Island's going to be there no matter how many people that fucking shark kills. And as as buffoonish and stupid as the mayor was, you know, you could easily get a new mayor. It's not <laughs> as easy to find a new Don for a crime organization that bears the family name. And, you know, I was rooting for Sonny when he was going to get revenge on Carlo, but, you know, we can all, we can all get on board with Sonny because, you know, we all want to be impulsive at times, but just, you know, we ratchet it back. But, you know, Sonny would have been a lot more destructive to his organization if there was no Michael, because Michael went about the revenge on Carlo in a much more subtle way and actually pulled it off. So I think, uh, yeah, I think Sonny was a lot more destructive to their respective organizations. All right, final one. More compelling messianic figure, Colonel Kurtz or Howard Beale? Another very tough one. But in the end, I think it's going to be Kurtz for me because, hmm, Brando, even when he's not trying at all, and we all know that he wasn't trying at all, is so compelling. And that I think that's more of a testament to Coppola than it was to Brando because he had to film so many hours of footage just to get a coherent sentence out of Brando. And even though a lot of what he's saying doesn't make a lot of sense, it's kind of what you would expect out of a madman. And... 
the way that the native people were just literally just worshiping him, this just fat old white guy, <laughs> this fat bald white guy, was a lot more compelling. Plus, we didn't see him until, what was it, maybe 25, 30 minutes left in the film. So all we heard was the buildup, the buildup, the buildup. And that's what you hear about messianic figures. They don't show themselves that much, especially, you know, in the um, cults and stuff today. So, uh, yeah, that's my argument. Some good arguments there. I'm going to disagree. I'm going to go with Howard Beale. And I think my main argument is that him and his message are just so much more relatable. Okay. And so, you know, everybody's had times in their life where they just want to say, I can't take this anymore and to hell with all this stuff. And, and so what Howard Beale was doing was really tapping into impulses that everyone has had at one time or another. So for me, that makes him a little more compelling, even though they were both the great messianic figures. Yeah, I would much rather follow Howard Beale. Don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way the question was worded. Anyway, moving on. That was it for either or. Either or. So now on to who won the decade. Who won the decade? Martin, who won the decade as a director? Okay, there were a bunch of incredible directors in this decade as we talked about and we've talked about most of them um a couple of them mainly big for two movies including spielberg with jaws and close encounters i mean you know he had 1941 as well but we don't have to talk about that one uh lucas with american graffiti and star wars uh, woody allen somebody we haven't talked about maybe for good reason uh for yeah. for annie hall in manhattan um as well as some other movies but those were his two big standout films but this kind of then for me comes down to coppola scorsese and Sidney lumet so with coppola you've got godfathers one and two apocalypse now and the conversation scorsese you've got a few more credits but really only two undeniable classics with Mean Street and, and Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. Maybe The Last Waltz, if you include documentaries, uh, which is an incredible documentary. And uh, Sidney Lumet had Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, and Network. A pretty damn good trio of movies for one director for, for a decade. But I've, I've got to go with Coppola, just because if you've got Godfathers 1 and 2, you have two of the five greatest films of all time, and then you also add Apocalypse Now, which has got to be somewhere on the list. And, um, and, uh, and you know, a nice film like The Conversation. For me, it's got to be Coppola. Yeah, totally agree. All right, that was easy. Let's move <laughs> on to who won the, which actor won the decade? One word, and especially if you're a Lakers fan, you know this, it's Jack. <laughs> Not only did he have Chinatown and Cuckoo's Nest, which we mentioned, but Carnal Knowledge, which was a groundbreaking erotic thriller in its own time. It broke all kinds of boundaries. And one of my personal favorites, the Who musical, Tommy. Oh, I had completely forgotten about that one. 
Yeah, I picked Nicholson as well. I mean, he also had five easy pieces, the last detail as well. Uh, four Oscar nominations and one win in the decade. The only other two possible ca- candidates would have been De Niro and Pacino, who also mm-hmm. both had pretty good decades. I mean, De Niro's got Mean Streets, Godfather 2, Taxi Driver, The Deer Hunter. That's a pretty damn good decade. Yeah, and Pacino yeah. with the two Godfathers, Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. But, yeah, it's it's got to be Jack as well. So, actress, Martin, who's your pick? All right. There are a number of interesting candidates, I think, this time around. You know, you have people like Faye Dunaway, who was in two of the movies we talked about uh, for these, these 70s podcasts. There's Meryl Streep, who was just getting started on her career, but still managed at the end of the decade to throw Deer Hunter and Manhattan and Kramer versus Kramer and two Oscar nominations in just at the beginning, open at the outset of her career. Uh, you've got Talia Shire, who we talked about. You've got somebody like Ellen Burstyn, who was in Last Picture Show and The Exorcist. But I'm going to give it to Diane Keaton. I think oh, it's wow, okay. uh, I think it's hard to, to overlook uh, Godfathers 1 and 2, Annie Hall, and Manhattan. So um, two movies each, two classics each from from uh, two different directors. And she just had a, a monster decade. Yeah, okay. Um, I feel like <laughs> I feel like you've already won this argument, but um, <laughs> I, I actually picked uh, Faye Dunaway just because um, I think the two performances that she had in Chinatown and Network were so overpowering, and she stole the show in both of those films that I think those two make up for her kind of lack of filmography. It wasn't an expansive filmography, but those were two of the most impactful performances by a female in movie history. That's fair enough. They they were two incredible performances, no question about it. All right. Um, which genre won the decade? This is another last-minute kind of decision I made, but for me, it's horror. Oh, And I haven't... Pi- I haven't picked horror since the 20s, I believe. I was going to go with um, uh, Summer Blockbuster, but I don't think that really falls into a genre. So I I tried to kind of specify it, but between The Omen, The Exorcist, Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, and Jaws is a summer blockbuster, but it's also technically a horror film. And I think this was such a resurrection of horror and there were so many uh, things that directors and writers could do now that they were so restricted by the uh, the Hayes Code from the 30s to the 60s that all bets were off now. I mean, you could do anything. You could have as much violence as you wanted within reason, but for all intents and purposes, all bets were off. And I think those five films alone just kind of brought the genre back in a way that hadn't been seen since with any other genre. Okay, I've got a completely different choice, and I'm going with crime drama. And oh, okay. so now I'm, that for me, I'm expanding the definition a little now, but if you include movies like The Godfathers, Serpico, even a movie like Dirty Harry, Doc, Dog Day Afternoon, mm-hmm. uh, The Sting, which is kind of a historical crime drama in a way. Yeah, um, I guess Chinatown counts. Yeah, try to add, yeah, any sort of drama about criminals and people who are chasing them and where that's at the center of the, for me, that that is the genre that totally dominated the decade. And I guess that's, 
tilted a little bit more towards the early part of the 70s than the late part mm-hmm. of the 70s, but still, I think it's crime drama for me. All right, and uh, lastly, in Who Won the Decade, the studio. All right, this is, uh, this is somewhat of a tough one because uh, we talked about this in the last podcast. The 60s had been a bad decade for studios, and studios were still struggling to recover in the 70s. Uh, 1971, for instance, was the worst theater attendance year in decades. Um, studios like MGM and United Artists, they didn't quite follow RKO in terms of dissolving completely, but they were pretty much reduced to minor players after being major studios before that. And only a few studios managed to ride out the storm by working on a new business model. And that new business model was co-production deals with big stars and directors. So for me, the the four that kind of managed to do that uh, were Warner Brothers, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, and Universal. And they all managed to survive the decade in that way. For me, it comes down to 20th Century Fox is going to be my choice. And the reason why is that I think... In addition to that business model, they saw where the industry was going in terms of blockbusters, and they were one of the first to really jump on it. So, for instance, they were the studio in the early 70s behind Poseidon Adventure and then Towering Inferno. They obviously were the studio that got behind Star Wars. So um, I think they kind of saw where the industry was going in that way, and that launched them to success. So I'm going to pick 20th Century Fox. All right, um, I'm going to go with Paramount, which was one of your finalists. Yeah. <laughs> they did Godfather 1 and 2, which we have said multiple times are two of the greatest <laughs> movies of all time. Chinatown, which is my favorite screenplay of all time. And they kind of half-produced Apocalypse now. They gave the initial funding to Coppola, but he wound up having to make his own independent studio <laughs> to wind up finishing it. But without that initial kind of financial boost, there wouldn't have been Apocalypse Now, and all four of those are incredible films. Fair enough. Fair enough. So now, our new segment. A lot of you people have been asking us how we choose these films and how we break them down, and... We basically just discuss them, but we're deciding to let you into this discussion. (laughs) Behind the curtain a little bit, as it were. (laughs) Yeah, a little inside baseball. So, our new segment, Enter the Battle Zone! Zone, 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 zone. Okay, so what we're going to do in this segment, then, is... um, We're going to each nominate a movie for the 80s for the next podcast we're going to do on movies of the 80s. And we'll go back and forth each nominating a movie. If we both happen to agree, we've got our lists of 10 already. We both happen to agree on a movie, then it gets accepted. If we don't, then the movie that hasn't been agreed upon goes into the battle zone where we'll argue them all out at the end. So... (laughs) We hope that this is good. Uh, Who knows? This may turn out to be a dud if we agree on all 10 movies. That seems incredibly unlikely. And particularly (laughs) for this segment going forward, I'd be very surprised in the 90s if 
we have even five movies in common. Uh, but we'll, yeah. we'll see how yeah. this goes. So, all right, we hope you enjoy this. Zach, why don't, why don't you kick us off and nominate your first movie? Okie dokie. My first nominee is Raging Bull. Wow. Okay. I did not have Raging Bull as one of my ten. So right off the bat, we're... Uh, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> we're disagreeing. Right, so okay. Raging Bull goes into the battle zone. <laughs> All right. My first movie to nominate is Wall Street. I did not have Wall Street. (laughs) Okay, this could get interesting. (laughs) All right. So my my second movie is Blade Runner. (laughs) All right, I had kind of cheated, and I sort of had 11 and 2 down at the end of my list that I wasn't sure which one I was going to accept. So I'll I'll accept Blade Runner. Let's let's, let's do Blade Runner. All right, my uh, second one to nominate is E.T., Okay, I kind of had a bullpen as well, and I didn't want to do two Spielberg movies in the same decade, so I had E.T. slash Indiana Jones. So do you have a preference? Are you willing to cut one? Do you have both of them on your list? What's the story? I have both on my list. Ah, shit. I think we need both of them. All right, so which one are you willing to put into the battle zone? Um... Sure, let's throw E.T. into the battle zone, then. Okay. All right, go ahead. Your nomination number three, then. Back to the Future. Got it. It's on the list. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's on the list. <laughs> <laughs> so we got Blade Runner and Back to the Future so far. Yeah. And then, well, my, my third uh, nomination was actually going to be Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I guess that's, that's the one we decided to keep, so that's uh, accepted, then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Okay. All right, what's your next nomination? Die Hard. Hey, that was going to be my next one. Perfect. Okay. All right, cool. So we agree on that one. All right, then that drops me down to my next one under that, which is Lethal Weapon. Mine is Scarface. Nope, don't have it. Okay, so I throw them both into the battle zone then? Yeah. Okay. Wow, yeah, this is actually more complex than it's ever been before we've i think the lowest amount we've agreed on up to this point was seven movies and i think that yeah, was for the 60s so <laughs> um, okay uh my next one is the breakfast club Ooh, i had princess bride oh shit man more battle okay i didn't have the i didn't have princess bride all right um one of my last ones is when harry met sally Mine is the wall. Nope. <laughs> okay. Then my final one then is do the right thing. I had to do the right thing. Hey, okay, it's accepted. <laughs> you don't have to battle if we do the right thing. All right, so then we have five movies that we've well, accepted. No, I, still, I still have one more. Oh, do you? Oh, whoops. Okay. The Shining. <laughs> I don't have it. <laughs> well, obviously, because you <laughs> ran out of your Oh, list. yeah, that's right. All right, so that means we've got five accepted and a total of ten that we're going to have to battle out and whittle down to five. So why don't you try to make the case to me for the uh, 
for the first one. I, I did my list in order of which ones I think are most important to include. So I guess uh-huh. um, if we do it that way, then if you can convince me, then that can go on the list and that just makes it. So we'll see. My last couple might not make it. Oh, I want to hear him Sally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Raging Bull is number four on the AFI list. It's the number one sports movie on the AFI list. I think it is the best uh, collaboration. Better, better, yeah, okay. Better than Taxi Driver. Yeah, I think it's even a better movie than Goodfellas, if, even if it's not more iconic. And it's also the first time that Scorsese, um, De Niro, and Joe Pesci all work together. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing film. <laughs> I'll agree. And I don't know how you can leave one of the top five <laughs> movies on the AFI list out. Well, because I agree that it's an amazing film, but I'm not sure... Again, in in terms of what we're doing in the Century Series, I'm not sure that it's original or groundbreaking enough, or I guess even trendsetting enough. It doesn't typify the 80s movies to me in a way that suggests that we absolutely need to have it when we're talking about 80s movies. It's I, I will not deny that it's an unbelievable film. And I might even agree with you, actually, that it might be the best uh, De Niro-Scorsese um, collaboration. But... Uh, but I'm not sure that's enough to make it onto my list of movies that we have to talk about when we're talking about the development of film throughout the 80s. I don't I just, I don't agree. <laughs> All right, let's set it aside for now then, because we may have to, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll keep it on the, we'll keep it in the battle zone for now. Um, all right, I'll, I'll, so I'll try to convince you on Wall Street. So right. for me, because this was the first one on my list. Oh, was it really? Oh my I God. don't think that there is a movie, like, is there a movie that more typifies the whole ethos of the 80s than Wall Street? I don't think there is. And um, just the, you know, a movie where the, 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 the tagline and the lead character's main theme is greed is good. That is the 80s in a way. And uh, whatever you think about Oliver Stone as a filmmaker, this um, was undeniably his masterpiece and just really, I don't think you can talk about the 80s without this film. All right. How about this? Right. I will scratch off the wall and keep Raging Bull for now. Okay. Okay. All right, yeah, we'll put Wall Street in, and I'll sacrifice the wall. Okay. Okay. So then what's your next one, then? That you had, I can't remember. That's in the battle zone. The, ne- the, the next one that I'm really passionate about is The Shining. Okay. Okay, give, give, give me your arguments. I mean, I know this is going to affect you, but it's my, fa- <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite horror movie of all time. It's one of the maybe two or three horror movies that I've ever seen that legitimately freaks me out. It's Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick with Jack Nicholson, and it's cool to kind of see the uh, the evolution of Kubrick. He's kind of doing a kind of smaller films after we covered Space Odyssey, and it's nice to see kind of older Jack do his thing and not be the happy-go-lucky kind of all smiling, all eyebrows guy that he was in the 60s and 70s. 
and I think it takes horror in a new kind of psychological direction that hadn't been seen earlier. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I can, I can see where you're coming with that. And also it's one of not the first, but one of many, many, many Stephen King adaptations to, to film that have happened. Um, and you're right. This was probably the first movie as a kid that scared the hell out of me as well. So it definitely Did, does. Have was that. it the twins? Was it, it the twins that freaked you out? Uh, yeah, yeah, the twins definitely freaked yeah. me out. I think, <laughs> but I think more than anything else, it was that uh, that old lady in the bathtub or that lady Ooh. turning to whatever. Oh, that, God. Oh, still to this yeah. day. Anyway, so, yeah, you're right. It's got a bit of a psychological hold on me even to this day. So so I will, uh, I will accept The Shining. But the question is, what do I have to drop for that? Uh I really don't want to drop When Harry Met Sally because it really sort of revived the romantic comedy movie. And That's it's, AET, man. And it's possibly the greatest romantic comedy of all time. Um, all right. All right, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll drop E.T. I can't believe we're doing a podcast of, on movies of the 80s without E.T., but I guess we will have Spielberg with Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But, oh, that is tough to drop E.T. But, all right. We'll drop E.T. So, so now we're up to seven then. So we've got The Shining and, and no E.T. All right. So then I will try to make a case for Lethal Weapon. <laughs> and this is because buddy cop movies were an absolute growth industry in the 80s. They were all <laughs> over the place. And this could you know be anything. It could be 48 Hours. It could be Beverly Hills Cop. Basically any of those kind of movies from the 80s. But this seems to encompass so many of the tropes of that subgenre. And honestly, it's probably the best out of all those two. And that's, uh, that's why I chose Lethal Weapon. I just think that in terms of developments in the 80s, this was just such a massive franchise, but more than that, it was such a massive subgenre of movies that I'm not sure that we could leave it out. You know what? I will scratch off Raging Bull for Lethal Weapon. Oh, thank you. All right. So we've got up to eight now. All right. So what's your, what's your next one to put forth arguments for? Right, so we're down to Scarface and Princess Bride on my side against Breakfast Club and When Harry Met Sally on your side. Yeah. Sorry, Scarface and what? On my side. No, Scarface and what was the other one? That you oh, did? Princess Bride. Oh, Princess Bride. Okay. We've already done a William Goldman. I'm willing to... Get rid of Princess Bride and keep Scarface <laughs> if you can choose one of yours. To I was, well. was going to propose the other trade. Oh, I, fuck. I was going to say I could get rid of Harry Met Sally when Harry Met Sally for Princess Bride if I could stick the Breakfast Club in there instead of Scarface. <laughs> oh, goddamn. All right. Okay, well, hold on. Make your case for Scarface then. What movie typifies the 80s more than Scarface? I mean, between the synthesizer score, the the cocaine uh, epidemic being highlighted. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, 
I'll, I'll admit it's not the greatest Pacino movie. You know, it's it's where Pacino started to go full modern day Pacino, <laughs> where he would just yell all the time and call that acting. But I mean, it is so eighties from the uh, from the director to the soundtrack, the acting, everything. If, I mean, if we're gonna go eighties, then. You're kind of being a hypocrite if we don't do Scarface. <laughs> yeah, you're Princess, right. Because right. Princess Bride is a better movie, I will fully admit. <laughs> but if we're going to do how we're propelling this uh, Century series forward, it's Scarface. Uh, okay, that's that's a good point. It's uh, I'd forgotten just how 80s it was, you're right, in terms of the soundtrack and, and everything else and the... Yeah, the influx of cocaine, and you're right. It is kind of alongside the shirts. Yeah, and it Miami is kind of alongside and, yeah. Wall Street in that absolutely typifies the '80s kind of movie. Um, okay, I will accept Scarface then. Um, it's just a question of whether I drop When Harry Met Sally or whether I drop The Breakfast Club. So let me let, let me make the case for The Breakfast Club then, just because I mean, John Hughes was basically his own subgenre in the mm-hmm. '80s. And I think people have been trying for decades to sort of duplicate that special alchemy that his movies had <laughs> that made them so great. Um, and uh, I chose this one instead of, I think there were other, a lot of other John Hughes films, Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is absolutely my favorite of them, no question about it. Mm. Um, and it's probably the one of his that's, uh, the storyline is less typical of his storylines, but it's still kind of the most long-lasting impact, um, I think, in, in terms of his movies. It's just got all these high school kids' archetypes, and they're even... I mean, that is the character. It's like, here's this archetype, and here's this archetype, and just put them into a room together for a movie and see what happens. So I think that just the high school kids' movie changed completely with The Breakfast Club. So maybe I'm talking myself into dropping When Harry Met Sally, which is a really tough thing to do, because as I said, I think it kind of revitalized the romantic comedy, which had sort of been dead for a few decades before that. Um, So maybe we'll still have to keep the uh, Who Missed the Cut segment so I can at least say a little piece about When Harry Met Sally when the time comes. But all right, I I will accept Scarface if you accept The Breakfast Club. Agreed. All right. So that is our 10, and that was The Battle Zone. The Battle Zone. (laughs) So that means our 10 movies that we will discuss in the 80s are... um, I have to make sure I wrote them all down properly. Okay. (laughs) Wall Street, Scarface, Raiders of the Lost Ark... Back to the Future, Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, Breakfast Club, Do the Right Thing, Blade Runner, and The Shining. That obviously that obviously wasn't chronological order, but that will be what we look at for our podcasts on the 80s. Sounds good to me. All right, so that is the end of our series on the 70s. We hope you enjoyed our new battle zone. Zone, zone, zone. (laughs) (laughs) And 
yeah, we you can always find us at unsolicitedfilmreviews.com. You can find us on Facebook at Unsolicited Film Reviews. You can find us on Instagram at unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews. You can find me personally at Zach T. Miller on Instagram. And you can find me at J. Martin Cook, Cook with an E, on Instagram. And oh yeah, you can always find us on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your goddamn podcasts. So... We appreciate you listening as always, and we will see you next time for the 1980s on the unsolicitedfilmreviews.com Century Series. You've been listening to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast, hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook, with original music by Martin Cook and original artwork by Dan Ong. Sponsored by No One. See you next time.